Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 236 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. The cleaning and sorting continues at a fair old pace. I'm reminded that a Christmas wish list needs compiling and my mind is drawn to planning our winter oxalic acid treatments. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm delighted to say that our podcast is now sponsored in part by Simon the Beekeeper. Making beekeeping an affordable hobby for everyone, Simon the Beekeeper provides the best value beekeeping equipment possible, along with a super fast delivery service. The bees won't wait, so their customers don't have to either. Visit the website at www.simonthebeekeeper.co.uk. Welcome back to my wonderful world of beekeeping, slow though the actual beekeeping has now become. We're racing headlong towards the end of November and another month closer to the start of a new season. It is still a very long way off, but I do get a bit twitchy when I'm sat down at my desk each weekend and pondering the topics for my latest podcast. It seems to come round faster and faster. We've just had a fantastic week being busy bees at the workshop and in the honey room. Making a start on the cleaning was the very best thing we could have done and it's really surprising just how much we were able to get sorted in one session. I think having others around you to chat with helps but also getting in the diary as I think I mentioned last week. The focus was again national equipment, specifically supers, cutting out wax comb, scraping frames, tying them in bundles and washing in the vat, scraping and scorching boxes, and finally putting the frames back into the boxes before strapping them down and taking them back to the grain store, all in one day. The frames dry out naturally and slowly, most of the time without any shrinking or twisting. I know some beekeepers stack the frames and put a heavy weight on top to hold them in position as they dry to prevent any twisting, but I've not really found that this is necessary. A nice little bonus to the cleaning has meant another block or two of wax, represented by a couple of bin bags of old comb, various bits of broken foundation, and the odd bit of brace comb all of which will probably make me a single candle, or maybe two. While we were all chatting, that's me, Steph, Pete and Katie, we got onto the subject of candle making, amongst others, and it's something that I've done before for fairs and markets, but not in any real quantity or with any real focus. I guess what I mean there was uh, a lack of quality. Anyway, I'm certainly not going to enter any of my candles into one of the various national honey show categories, unless, of course, there's one for worst candle maker of the year. That said, we have turned out some reasonable efforts over the years, and they do sell quite well whenever we've had them at markets. Not that we go to many markets these days. I just don't know where I would find the time, to be honest. Over the years, we've accumulated a number of different moulds, ranging from squat square candles to novelty Christmas ones. It has to be said, they're not cheap, the moulds that is. 
I just took a look online for a Christmassy themed pine cone. It's a silicon mould and it's £37. I guess if you look after them well, they should last for many years or at least many uses. I haven't made enough candles to get to the point that a mould has failed on me, to be honest, but I guess there comes a time when that happens. I've always wanted to have a go at dipping candles. It seems a lot simpler, and if you can get into a rhythm, they ought to come out looking pretty spectacular. I imagine it needs some kind of frame or jig if you want to make more than two candles at a time. Again, looking online, there are various bits of kit you can buy, but once again, you've got to hand over a not insignificant amount of cash. I'd love to play around with some kind of homemade design for a jig to make dipped candles, but again, I just don't think I'll have the time, maybe in January or February. But probably not. I can think of so many other jobs that take priority and need finishing off, and we still have the decision about where we're going to end up next year in terms of honey extraction. One of the other topics that cropped up while we were cleaning frames and scorching boxes was the cost of cleaning frames compared to simply replacing them. We were talking about the actual cost in terms of time and money of cleaning all of the frames when compared to simply buying frames in bulk that have already been made up and just need wax foundation fitted to them. When you account for the actual hours, the gas cost to heat the water for boiling, and the sundry costs for things like washing soda crystals and the like, it adds up to a significant amount of money. But does it actually exceed the cost of replacement frames? Well, we reckoned it was a close-run thing, but washing and reusing still comes out a few hundred pounds cheaper than buying in new, certainly for the quantity that we were cleaning. There's also the moral issue of wastefulness in throwing away frames that could, with a little effort, be reused, and the ever-increasing burden on the planet to provide for our wasteful ways. I think for the vast majority of beekeepers, cleaning and reusing frames is the way forward. I'm certainly in that camp. Perhaps as we grow the business further, I might be in a position to pay for some help to get the job done, but I'd rather that than simply put them on a bonfire. I'm still using some frames that must be at least 15 years old, and that to me feels like the right thing to do. Changing the subject, have you been thinking about Christmas yet? It seems all the usual suspects have been getting us to think about it. The TV adverts are popping up everywhere. We've just had the Black Friday sales to try to get us in the mood for spending, and my mind has been drifting to that all-important Christmas present wish list. It would be easy to say that after so many years of beekeeping, there's not much else to get, but of course, I would be wrong. I can always think of bits and pieces that I'd like to add to the armoury of beekeeping stuff, and there are always items that need replacing. I can remember one year being in a rush to get from one apiary to the next, I managed to reverse the car over my smoker not much you can do but replace it in that situation add it to the christmas wish list i've also managed to lose one of my favorite hive tools and of course eventually bee suits become worn and need replacing if you're just starting out in beekeeping well that's a whole different ball game there's an aladdin's cave of kit just waiting to catch your eye the best thing to do really is to make a list start with the must-haves a decent bee suit has to be right up there. 
I've tried quite a number of different bee suits over the years and I keep going back to my favourites from BB Wear and Simon the Beekeeper. I've been pleasantly surprised by the quality of the suits from Simon the Beekeeper given that the price is really so affordable. They are what I would term off-the-shelf bee suits, so sizing can be a little problematic. The best thing to do is to give them a call to check on sizing, but as it's Christmas, I'm sure if you got the wrong size as a present, they would be more than happy to swap it for a better fitting one. Hive tools and smokers are another example of must-have bits of kit for the new beekeeper. Don't be fooled by anyone telling you that you don't really need a smoker, and certainly don't watch YouTube examples of beekeepers playing with bees without using smokers and think you're going to experience some kind of utopian meditative state as you open your beehive in the spring when it's a little cool and stormy. The bees will certainly let you know that they're there. Get a big one, smoker that is, even if you only have one beehive. They'll last for years, unless you drive over it with your car, and if your beekeeping expands, you'll always have a smoker that's up to the job. Something not everyone thinks about for their list is some kind of tool caddy, the open-topped tool tote bag kind of thing. It's always handy to have nearby, and you can get pretty much everything you might need in it for those panicky moments when you're carrying out an inspection and you watch several queen cells open and virgin queens emerge as you think to yourself, I wish I'd picked up a handful of queen cages. Now, there's another item for your list. A dozen or so queen cages, obviously for your tote bag. I've had it happen on many occasions in the spring. You approach your inspection, relaxed and positive that all is well with your bees, only to open the hive and see multiple queen cells emerging. Your zen-like state goes out of the window and you start dashing around, trying to find those cages to catch as many queens as possible. I know this is true because I've done it myself, and I'm sure there are many beekeepers out there that remember exactly the same moment as it happened to them. Add queen marking pens to your list too. Next year, 2023, we'll be marking our newly mated queens with a red dot, but don't forget, you may well have queens from this year that need marking, and that needs to be yellow, so if you haven't got one, ask for one of each. I favour the Posca water-based bullet-tipped markers. I'll pop some links in the podcast notes for all of these to help you along the way. You might consider adding a few books to your wish list too, something to help you through the final weeks of winter as we head into the new season. I've only a small collection of beekeeping books really, enough for a couple of shelves, and those are not particularly wide shelves. Each of the books has a few nuggets of really useful information, and I would struggle to name one specific book that covers everything that I've ever wanted to know. That said, I guess I need to pick on something so that you can add it to your wish list. So here goes. Although rather dated now, despite being revised, I do think Ted Hooper's Guide to Bees and Honey is still one of the most informative books out there. Combine this with Celia Davis' twin offering of The Honey Bee Inside and Out and The Honey Bee Around and About, and you'll cover most bases. If you're looking for something that focuses on queen rearing, then my go-to read is David Woodward's Queen Bee Biology, Rearing and Breeding. It's a must-have book for anyone delving into queen rearing and is a constant companion when I want to refresh my memory of a particular technique or process. 
there are many, many more books I could also list, and I'm sure everyone has a personal favourite. A point brought home to me recently when I suggested using Rex Sawyer's book about honey identification and was offered several different alternatives as superior to the one I had selected. As with most things in beekeeping, nothing is ever black and white, or very rarely black and white. There are always other ways of getting to the same end result. I hope my short list of Christmas presents for the beginner beekeeper offers up something you might think to add to your own list, along with socks and pants, of course. Moving on to the more immediate days and weeks ahead, before we get to the opening of presents and the king's speech, my focus turns to our winter oxalic acid treatments. I've spoken before about the treatment period for using oxalic acid as a winter varroa treatment, and my thoughts on the efficacy of the single treatment between Christmas and the New Year has changed somewhat. There was a time when I would simply follow the advice that I'd been given by older, wiser beekeepers, but then following other comments and practical experience, combined with what I've actually seen in the hives in November and December myself, my opinion has gradually changed. Before I continue, I would advocate generally not opening your hive anytime soon and searching for brood. Here, I probably need to rewind, again for the sake of the beginner beekeeper listening, Oxalic acid treatments only work on the varroa mites that are wandering around the hive, exposed on frames or attached to bees. It doesn't get rid of any of the mites that may be hidden within sealed cells containing brood. So how do you know when your colony is in a broodless state? Well, unless you split it wide open and check, you won't know, and you have to take a guess or follow the advice from other beekeepers. In the interests of shooting a few videos, I did decide to open up a few colonies last year in late November. As I say, it's not advisable. The cluster will cool very quickly and much-needed brood may well die. As an aside, bees don't really do anything unless it's to secure the health and well-being of their colony. So if there's brood in there, it's there for a reason. So you don't want to be destroying it if you can help it. This is all the more important during the winter, when colonies are unable to rebuild quickly, recover from losses or even the destruction of their queen. Beekeeper interventions during the active season are far more easily recovered by the bees. An example of this is a shook swarm. I wouldn't want to carry out this technique now, yet it's a useful tool to have when the bees are active in the late spring or summer. So we have two choices in terms of actively treating our colonies right now. Okay, there are other options such as not treating at all, but let's just focus on the two options I'm considering. Option one, a single oxalic acid treatment, either sublimated or trickled. It doesn't really matter which. Option two, three treatments, seven days apart, one week after the next, again sublimated or trickled. A single treatment may well catch the colony in a broodless period, and if you only have one hive, you might get lucky. Multiply that up to 100 hives or more, and the chances are you'll have some colonies that have brood in them, and your treatment won't be as effective as you'd like. My preferred option is the use of a treatment every seven days for three weeks. The way this works is any varroa mites on the back of bees will most likely be killed. Those in any sealed cells will survive. The sealed cells may have only just been sealed, so that's day eight in the life of a developing worker. 
This should mean they'll have another 13 days or thereabouts before they emerge. The two following weekly treatments act as a catch-all for those mites emerging after the first treatment. There are some other considerations here. What if the colony is, for whatever reason, still producing drone brood? Well, in that case, we'll miss out and any varroa hidden in those will survive. What if some varroa remain hidden in the bottom of a cell for an extra day before they emerge? I don't know why they would, but if that were to happen, again, we'd probably miss them. On the balance of probability, it's likely we'll hit the vast majority of varroa and reduce the population to a bare minimum, even if we don't remove them all. And I don't suppose we will. The effect of this triple treatment means the starting point of the varroa population is as low as it can possibly be and the population expansion will remain low well into the late summer and autumn for most of the colonies. There may well be one or two that slip through the net but we can deal with these on an individual basis as the need arises. If successful I plan to use the triple treatment as the only treatment for the coming year and hopefully use fewer chemical interventions in my hives with the added bonus of saving some money too. I'll keep you updated as we head into the treatment phase and keep a watchful eye on the Varroa numbers next year and report back as we go. Well that's it for this week. Don't forget to check out my website www.norfolk-honey.co.uk and for my latest videos and podcasts with more updates, tips and techniques it's the same old Patreon page www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. And remember, I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Mm-hmm.